What's it take to be the best? I mean, to really be the best at what you do. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, I would assume most of you want to be actors. Trying to be actors. They are actors, right? But are you operating at the highest level of this art form? How do you do that? Well, you better have an understanding of a few words. Obsession, passion, craft, commitment, sacrifice, hard work. The best. They're obsessed. It costs everything to be a first-rate artist. And at some point, you'll come to understand that, either because you've stepped into that realization, or you're looking at the hard work that it takes and saying to yourself, fuck it, I'm not interested in that. But today, we're going to talk to somebody who does understand it fully, Gavin Larson. She wrote one of the best memoirs about dance, about artistry, about craft that I've ever read, Being a Ballerina. And we're going to talk about it today. I'm so excited to share this episode with you, my friends. Put the phone back in your pocket. Creating behavior starts now. Hello, daydreamers. Man, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. You know, a few weeks ago, I was reading the New York Times, as I was wont to do, and I came across this really great review of a new memoir called Being a Ballerina by Gavin Larson. And I thought to myself, oh, I want to get this. I love dance. I love ballet. I think it's the most beautiful art form on the planet. Always have. And... I love going to the ballet and just sitting there in awe, in absolute awe at the artistry, the skill, the just the beauty that can be created with the physical form. Stunning. I mean, what's it take to become a prima ballerina? You know, there are a lot of people that want to dance, a lot of, a lot of young kids, you know, you grow up, you start going to dance class, and you think, oh, I want to be a dancer. But what's it mean to become a prima ballerina? What does that take? That's the top of the profession. And if you're sitting here wanting to be an actor, there's thousands and thousands upon thousands of you that say, I want to be an actor. But like, what's it mean to be considered one of the best? A transformational artist. Well, it's a lifetime of hard work. It requires a level of sacrifice, a level of commitment and hard work, and an obsession, really, an obsession for your art that is unshakable. Unshakable. Now, that's not for everybody. And I guess if I have any you know, wishes for you after you listen to this podcast that it gives you an opportunity to check in with yourself here and just kind of gauge where you're at. Maybe it's not something that you're obsessed about, and that's okay. It's okay, absolutely okay. You know, being an artist in this country is very difficult. It's hard. And I've said that before. We've talked about it, you know, throughout, you know, this show's history. So, 
I'm just going to turn it over to Gavin. This is one of the best memoirs on a creative life that I've ever read. And it was a privilege, truly, to, to speak with her. And I started off the conversation just asking her to read one of the most beautiful parts of the book, in my opinion. It uh, crystallized, I think, what it means to um, operate at a high artistic level. And let's start it off by hearing some of Being a Ballerina. Here's Gavin Larson. A dancer may dance because she loves to move expansively to music and has a beautiful physique, a natural facility, a knack for doing a lot of tricky steps, and the adventure, adventurousness to try them. But the ballerina dances because she has all of that plus more. She can communicate through the choreography with all those who've come before her, all those who are watching her now, and by leaving her perfume on the steps she dances with all those who come after where, other fi- where others find the freedom and exposure of the stage paralyzing, she is emboldened. She's not afraid. When she performs, she sheds her offstage persona and almost literally becomes the steps she's dancing. The audience forgets that they are watching a human being because the ballerina is inseparable from the music. She is inside the notes and they are wrapped around her. The music is her costume and she is its instrument. Her deep, inborn awe and respect for ballet doesn't weigh her down or strike her with fear, but empowers her. She knows that she can and must let go of her ego to get past the dangerous, scary zone of purely technical dancing and rise to the next level, to where it doesn't matter what her name is, where she can stop being a competent artisan, where she surrenders to the invisible forces of music and movement just enough to make the audience gasp while keeping a firm toehold on her hard-won technique. She is, after all, like all dancers, a craftsperson first. But she doesn't stop once she's honed her craft to the finest point her body allows, which may be short of the ideal. Even then, she digs below the lovely shapes that are just superficial, though in breathtakingly clear evidence. She is a stickler for precision in her technique and lets no step, however small or brief, be unconsidered. She knows that, like the fur lining inside the collar of a coat, even what's unseen is visible, if not to the audience in the back row, then to her. And since she is responsible for the steps she's doing, if she lets one of them slide, she's lost a small fraction of her power to create an artwork. That's beautiful. Thank you. Did you know you were a writer? No, I didn't. I come from a a literary background literary family. My father is a writer and my mother was a, a book editor. And so, you know, I grew up reading a ton and was always fascinated by reading, um, especially about other people. I was always really interested in, in reading biographies and autobiographies. And I was good in school at writing book reports and things, but I didn't write for fun as a kid or even as a young adult. Um, so no, I did not know that I was a writer. I mean, you mentioned in the book the, the process of, of, knowing you had a memoir inside of you and you were taking a writing class and started writing little chapters, little vignettes. Right. Is that when you realize, Oh my God, like there's something here. Like I, I can, I can put into words 
what it is I've done with my life? Yeah, that's exactly when. Um, it was after I'd started the process. And the very first one I wrote, the very first piece that I wrote is a um, chapter in here called The Human Monolith. And that happened because I had, I had just finished my performing career. I was about, I don't know, probably just a few months after my last performance. And I had segued right into teaching for the ballet school connected to the company. And I was leaving the studio one day and I caught a glimpse of the company dancers rehearsing the Rite of Spring. And that was a ballet that I had been in the previous year, two years. And I, was, I stood there outside looking in at them and I could feel myself in that room even though I was outside looking at it. It was like a dream where you see yourself in the action. You see yourself in the scene, but you're not there. And I had this incredible reaction. It was so physical. And I just suddenly, like a lightning bolt, realized I have so many moments of memories like that that created my entire life as a dancer, my career, that I, I, I'm going to lose with every day that passes between the time of those occurrences and now, every day is going to take me further away from them and I'm going to lose them and lose them and lose them. And I got panicked about that. I didn't want to lose grasp of this, this thing. And so I went right home and no joke, I sat right down my computer and I just, it just spewed out of me writing that, that chapter. It's only a couple pages long. It's very short. I wrote about what I had felt, what it felt like to do that ballet to be in that scene and that got the ball rolling um after that i every time a memory like that or a, a an episode or a thought or a, a fragment of a conversation would come back to me i would just write it and so that's why all the chapters in the book are pretty short because they all started out as just capturing these little individual moments i thought of them as snapshots i thought of them as way as a way of taking little snapshot pictures of all of these pieces of my life and just, just to catch them so they wouldn't go away. And then at some point I realized I had enough of them accumulated and, you know, I thought I could string these together and make something cohesive out of it. And that's well, you how did. It I, mean, I, I really do feel like I, I, I went along with you in your entire career. I feel like you really take us, you take us right into the, the struggle, the pain, the joy, the beauty of living an artistic life. That is exactly what I wanted to do. That is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to bring the reader right into it, not just tell them, this happened to me, this happened to me, I did this, I did that. I wanted them to come with me in there and feel it for themselves. I was unexpectedly brought to life. When you hurt yourself and you talk about your ankle injury, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, my heart's just like, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Now, I, I'm curious, because um, you have such work ethic and you had such discipline and dedication, did that translate easily to writing? Because I just feel like writing is a completely different, more vulnerable process. But like, were you, did you, were you like pumping it out every day, sitting down, you know, putting five hours in at the computer? No, I, no. I mean, I, I felt so, yeah, the process of writing is so vastly different from the process of dancing. Yeah. That was the hardest thing. I'm not good at sitting still for long periods of time. So I was not, and I had all this guilt because I thought you, if you're going to mm. be a writer, you're supposed to like wake up before dawn and write how many thousands of words per day or else you're not valid. And I couldn't do it. 
I couldn't do it. I, I, my attention span was too short. My physical attention span was too short. That just didn't suit me. And so I thought if I do that, I'm forcing it. So I didn't force it. I let it come out when it, when I felt inspired. And that's why it also took me 10 years to get the book finished. But I did apply the principles of a dancer to wanting it to be just right and to wanting to have a technique to what I was doing and artistically to being completely bold and not holding anything back. And uh, that's a reason why I wrote the way I did, which is that a lot of the pieces are not in my voice. I wanted to put on a costume, so to speak, and show and express what had happened to me through another person's voice as if I was a character. And that enabled me to be bold enough to be truthful and forthright. So that was the principle from my dancer persona that I applied the strongest to being a writer. So when you were young and you start, you know, you were, what, six, seven, eight years old when you start? Yeah, I was about eight. Mm-hmm. Eight. What separates, when you look back, separated you from those that didn't work as hard? What was interesting, what happened for me was not that I thought, well, I have to work harder if I want to be good, was that I noticed others, other individuals around me were not working as hard as I was and just didn't seem as interested as I did, weren't as compelled as I did. And I I don't remember, I didn't have any judgment about that. I just noticed it because I was so compelled to do what I was doing. I kind of regarded those people with a little bit of curiosity, like, huh, well, that's weird. (laughs) Why Why are you kind of ambivalent about this? I can't imagine because to me, there was no other way. You know, you're All I ever wanted to do was go to my ballet classes and to think about it some more and then to read about it some more and then look at some more pictures and then see some performances and then take some more classes. Mm -hmm. There there were other, you know, other kids my age who were in my classes with me who would talk about, you know, doing other things with their school or, and I thought, gosh, that sounds boring. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So I was always really kind of tunnel visioned about about ballet. Well, may I tell my students that it needs to be an obsession? Yeah, it does. It does. And you can't force it. I mean, you're either obsessed or you're not. And if you're not, you're not, that's, that's fine. But you, you can't force it and you can't pretend either, you know, pretend that it is if it's not. I think a lot of people do for a long time. And then you spend 10 years grinding out, you know, struggling, trying to make a career happen. And you go, why isn't anything happening for me? Well, it's yep. because maybe you're not, yep. it's, you're not obsessed. Yep. Yep. And I saw that all around me too. People who wanted, mm. you know, they wanted the trappings of the life. They wanted to be able to call themselves uh, a ballerina. Mm-hmm. They wanted, you know, it's, it's a colorful life. It's a colorful lifestyle. It's, there's a lot of fun, great things that have nothing to do with dancing about it. And people, a lot of people get, you know, compelled by that. You know, I saw a lot of people who would, who were good enough, you know, competent enough technically to make it, you know, to, to professional status and get into a company and get jobs and get work. And, but then they would kind of stagnate there and not get to any of the really gratifying work and uh, continue on like that for years, but be kind of, you know, that, that term people are using nowadays called languishing. Yeah. Kind of kind of languishing as a dancer and not miserable, but just not happy and definitely not 
a fulfilled artist, definitely not a, you know, particularly noteworthy artist, just a competent one. And then eventually kind of stop. <laughs> and yeah, so you, you really just, you can't force it. It's got to be a fire that's right there in you. I mean, did you have a real clear vision? Like, I, I want to be a principal dancer. I want to be working at the highest level. I mean, like, did, were you like clear headed about that? Or do you just want to be really good and everything kind of just came as a result of that? Yeah, I wasn't clear headed about my specific ambitions until pretty late in the game, actually. Um, during all my training years and yeah, during all my training years, for sure, I didn't really know what the possibilities were. I just knew that I wanted to dance for my life. You know, I wanted that to be my life. And then I figured out, okay, so the way you do that is you get good enough and then you audition for ballet companies and a company will hire you into their corps de ballet, which is the ensemble. And then you move on up from there. And I thought, okay, so those are the stepping stones and that's, that's my progress. And I was, I've, I've always had um, one of the hurdles for me as a person, as an artist has been a kind of a fear of actually making it big, uh, a fear of success. A fear of success. It's a legitimate, legitimate debilitating thing. Fear. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I actually have a distinct memory of being maybe 15, 16, 17 and thinking, gosh, so my dream is to be a soloist, you know, not a principal dancer, not the highest rank and not the lowest rank either, just the middle you know, where I'd be, I'd be prominent enough to get some, some solo parts and be a little recognized, but not so prominent as to have the major responsibility of being a principal dancer, being a star. And now looking back on that, I laugh because soon enough, I, you know, I joined the ensemble and I, then I was like, no, soloist, no, no, no. (laughs) There's more in me than that. Cause I saw that that's kind of like, you know, it's great. And there are fabulous, fabulous dancers who have marvelous careers at the soloist level. But I could, by then I was starting to feel there was more in me to give than that. And if I didn't have the opportunity to give it, I would be, I would be unsatisfied. You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of artists that think that of themselves without really knowing that they just don't really have chops for it it seems to me this reading you that like you knew that you were operating at a different level than other people other dancers yeah you were a certainty maybe about about how good you you were yeah that is true and i i'm sort of embarrassed to say that but i did i had i just knew because i i looked i watched people i watched people so closely I mean, you watched other dancers, other watched dancers. their work and like yes. why they were failing or why they were yes. a principal dancer and what yes. they were doing. I watched the principal dancers. I scrutinized them. They're in class. I watched them like work in class. I watched them work on stage. I watched them behind the scenes. I watched them walking down the hall. I watched them in the wings. I watched them outside of the ballet environment. And I scrutinized what they did, who they were what made them so special. And I knew I had it. I knew I could do it too. And I knew what did it teach you? Like, what did you learn? I learned how to give, I mean, this, this sounds very vague, but I learned how to completely give of yourself to the movement you're doing, 
but also to be really, really um, methodical in the way you're doing that in the way. So it's not just completely being abandoned and, you know, anyone can like just scream from the, from the rooftops, but it's the way you scream, you know, it's the technique behind your scream. So I knew I had the artistic ability to be a really powerful communicator uh, as a, in a theatrical sense. I could just, I just knew because I could, I was doing that in my ensemble roles and it was the technical part of it that was holding me back. I didn't have the, like the, the actual ballet technique to advance quickly through the ranks. I had the artistic potential. Like, now, what's the difference? Like, what do you mean by that? Because I, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily know how to explain that. Yeah, yeah. So what I mean by the, the balletic technique versus the artistic potential and technique is that like the strict physical ability to execute the ballet steps, the complicated ones. So, you know, you, could, you have to be um, able to do the, the, the steps. So the pirouettes, um, the jumps at a certain level, a certain number of pirouettes with a, with a consistency and a clarity of your form to achieve the right kind of lines with your body, uh, the right shape of your legs and your feet and your arms and your head, the complicated, the quick, you have to be able to move very, very quickly and cleanly. So the, the fast jumps, for example, the fast footwork is brilliant and breathtaking and, and visible versus a little bit slow and a little bit sloppy. Mm. And you need to be able to completely um, activate your feet the right way and at the right speed and have the technical strength to do, you know, the famous 32 fouettes in Swan Lake. (laughs) So that's the technical side. And then the artistic side is the ability to do those steps in a way that someone watching it doesn't even see that their technique. Yeah. Just the aesthetic beauty of it. Yeah. The the effortless, the grace, the ease, the simplicity. The ease and then the feeling of connection, the feeling of the person on the dancer on stage talking to you. And not just spinning around and doing the steps. Well, did you start imitating what you were watching, like the way they warmed up, what they wore, what they were doing, you know, before they before class started? Yep, I sure did. And I identified the specific dancers for what they did that I admired. So I I I would look at you know so and so and say you know think like I love the way she does that, and Mm -hmm. I kind of start almost subconsciously start to imitate it. And then someone else, I love the way they did that. I noticed how they, they moved in this certain way. And I noticed their warm up routine and kind of started to, to integrate that into my own. So I, I was a chameleon. I would, I would pick and choose uh, the way I wanted to be at any given moment and, um, and try to follow them. And then on the, on the flip side, I also saw the dancers that I didn't, you know, not that I didn't like them, but they were doing things that I, thought kind of were jarring or kind of rubs the wrong way. And like what, you know, certain, certain technical things on stage, I could see some sloppy moments. I could see some people not, not paying attention to certain areas of their technique and kind of thing that a lay person wouldn't notice, but the overall impression is affected. Yeah. You mean like kind of phoning it in? Kind of, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like phoning it in. Um, not completely, but mm-hmm. From time to time, like from moment to moment during a variation on stage or during a ballet, letting a step drop or letting mm-hmm. letting a certain little thing go unconsidered. Where the average person's not going to notice that. They wouldn't notice it. They won't think they notice it, but they actually will because the feeling that they get when they watch it is going to be a little diminished. Mm-hmm. They won't know why, though. 
and watching all of these really great successful dancers, is there something common throughout all of them that they possessed that you could say, you know what, every single person that I watched that was at that level had this or was carried themselves in yeah. a certain way? That's hard to identify, but yeah, there is. There is. Um, the word warmth comes to mind mm -hmm. even when doing a role that is not necessarily a warm persona that they were trying to portray, but it's, it's a humanity. Um, it's a way of seeing them as a person connecting across the divide from stage to audience. That's yeah, it, it is. It is. It's really hard to express in words. Can you, and here can I am you teach writer. that? I mean, I don't, that doesn't seem like something that's teachable. That's like seems like it's almost that's just innate to yeah. the artistic soul that you possess. I think it is. I don't think it is teachable. I mean, you can talk about it and you can encourage someone to, you know, I, I you know, encourage someone to try to relax enough to know that it's okay to be yourself and that you don't have to put on an extra layer of yeah. persona and that even if you are inhabiting a character it's most powerful if you really are just yourself in the character you don't have to be yourself trying to be the character it translates exactly to acting you know i mean no matter what the character is it's still you and you've got to bring your humanity to to that part right you know? exactly exactly it's interesting because even though you know, ballet performance involves this, these physical technical movements. It really is acting. Mm -hmm. It really is. You, you really are an actor too, even when doing a role that's a, a plotless ballet, that's not, doesn't have, you know, defined characters or a storyline. It's, you're still an actor. And George Balanchine mm -hmm. was very famous for not choreographing many ballets that had storylines yet. And he, of course, most of his ballets were plotless. And whenever someone would say, so is there a story there? We, we think we see a story in the way you have these dancers moving. And he'd say, you know, you put a man and a woman on stage, that's the story. And so it was up to the dancer to, you know, maybe make a story up for themselves. Very, could be vague, very, very amorphous, but you've got to portray it. Whatever the made up story is in your head, you have to be telling it. And there's, there is an emotional line to the dance that I would think a really great dancer has the, the emotional line of the piece. Yep. There's always an emotional line, even if it's not defined for you, you have to come up with it. You, you find it yourself. Yeah. 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 You, you find it yourself. You find it yourself. There's um, one line in the book that is my favorite. And I just, I want to get you to talk about okay. it. Uh -huh. Being uninteresting was worse than being wrong. Yep. I communicate that to my students. Some of them get it. Some of them don't. And to me, that is absolutely 100% true. Yeah. That's the crime is being uninteresting. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. That, that making the, mistakes is, is actually is wanted and expected. And yeah. So what, like, what, do you, so what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I tell that to my students now too, now that I, yeah. I teach ballet. I tell them, I don't, you know, I give them a really hard, hard adagio, for example, which is a slow, sustained um, combination of steps that require really fine balance and holding your leg up really high for a long time and acting very poised and serene. And we strive to do that without any physical, like little maneuvers, like without, you know, having to paddle your foot around on the floor to hold your balance. And we want to look like you're not trying to hold your balance. But what sometimes dancers in their effort to hold their balance become very stiff 
and they pull inwards with their physical energy. And so they look like a statue instead of a living, breathing person. And I tell them, I don't care if you have to put your leg down. I don't care if you have to fall over. I don't care if you have to do a balance check, but you must be large. You have to be big. You have to be bold in your movement. You have to step out and reach outwards with your energy. If you do that, every time you do that, you will also come closer to holding your balance at the same time. So first thing, we have to build in your quality of movement on top of your technique. If you const- if all you worry about is holding your balance, you're not going to have mm. any balance worth holding. No one's going to want to look at it. So to go back to it's, you know, it's worse to be uninteresting than to be wrong. That's that same concept. That realization came to you in a class when your teachers just stopped paying attention to you. That's exactly right. So I had that revelation very early on. Thank goodness. I was just a teenager when I realized that. And that set the tone for the rest of my life as a dancer and as an artist and as a person, honestly. Well, I tell my students, you know, some of them, you know, where they feel like I'm particularly difficult with them, particularly hard with them. And I say, well, you would rather have that than me to be uninterested in you. Yeah. Yeah. So take it as a compliment that I'm, that I'm pushing you and pressing you as hard as I am. Totally. But they, totally. A lot of them, they don't understand it. They think, God, what an asshole. This guy just won't leave me alone. And that was because I see something in you. Like, yep. I, you know, maybe you don't see it in yourself yet. Yeah. I do have the same thing with some of my students, some of my dance students. And I, you know, I, I push the ones that I see can be pushed. I see, yeah. I push the ones that have somewhere to go. You, yeah, know? you can't push everybody. And I, I've understood this as a teacher now. You can't expect that from everybody. You gotta, right. you, you push those that you know have the potential. That's right. You're right. And the ones who will, who will respond, who, you know, who will allow themselves to be pushed. Yeah. Some people don't want to be taught. That's right. They think they do, but, but right. they don't. They come to class, but then they won't take anything that you give them. Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, most people do just enough to get by in life. Yeah. yeah. And so very rarely are you challenged to, yeah. to, to, Give more than yeah. what you have given your entire life. Of- and that's exactly what happened to me when I was 17 and I was 16 or whatever in that class. I was getting by at that point. I was kind of coasting because I didn't know any better. Mm-hmm. My eyes were not open. I was just doing what I needed to do to get by and to be like, okay, she's good enough. She's good enough. She's good enough. Good enough. And then that one teacher was like, why good enough? Why not? Why are you happy being good enough? That's uninteresting. Yeah. Yeah. And I see in you that you can be better than good enough. And so I'm here to tell you that I'm not going to help you unless you agree to be helped. Wow. And then I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's it. And that was thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. What is it about the Russians? You say you'll always be intimidated by by Russians. They're colorful. They're colorful and they have Mm -hmm. this passion that they are not afraid to show. And it's, it's, Sometimes it's comical, honestly, and almost a caricature, but it's, I respect that. I really do. I really respect their passion and their deep honor of their heritage and their lineage. And that's Mm. something that I think all artists and my field, particularly all ballet dancers really need to recognize and honor and feel because it gives you a sense of importance in what you're doing and a sense of purpose in what you're doing. When you realize that you're just one link in this long lineage 
of other artists practicing at the same one art form. So there's the overarching art form of classical ballet, and there's a whole chain of practitioners going back generations, centuries, and you're just the latest link link in that chain. And the Russians seem to really recognize and honor that because it's how they're brought up and in in their culture and in that country, ballet is so revered and so respected. All the way back to Diaghilev, right? Exactly, yeah. The history is phenomenal. Yeah, it is. yeah, there's one line. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, in my way, I say it to my my students. He said, uh, a teacher said he, he'd pick a student and ask if they knew Nijinsky, who he was, yeah. and if they didn't, he'd say that they had about as much right to be in a ballet class as an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, yeah. I, you have to understand the history of your art form. Yeah. You know, it's different now than it was when I was a student. I'm really, really sorry to say, but. When I was a teenager and younger, you know, I was obsessed with my art form, not just doing it myself, but like reading all the books about it mm-hmm. and staring at the pictures. So there was no internet, there was no YouTube. All I had to learn from were books, basically, and live performances. Even seeing films of old, you know, dance performances was, was possible, but it was very hard. You had to go to the library and check it out. And <laughs> the Dewey Decimal System. like Totally, yes, exactly. <laughs> Fill out the little card and then sit at the desk and wait for them to bring you the reel of, you know, on 35 millimeter or whatever. So, but I just devoured the books and the photographs and read everything I could, mostly because I was at the School of American Ballet, which is George Balanchine's school. And so I was, you know, our, the, the atmosphere there is all about Balanchine. And I was like, I hooked, you know, I was hooked on it. I drank the Kool-Aid and, and grew up on George Balanchine and everything. And there is a, sort of, you know, he was a Russian. Mm-hmm. And so in at SAB and at his company, the New York City Ballet, the common um, dialogue and understanding and acceptance is that Balanchine is it. You know, it, it's a little bit of, you know, icon worship. Yeah, sure. um, and it can't go too far. But I also just adored the movement and his technique and his style just for what it was, the man himself aside. And so I just soaked up anything I could having to do with Balanchine, learning about his ballets, his early dancers, his own life story, um, his personal story, his professional story. I wanted to know all about every ballet that he choreographed and who the dancers were that were in it and what they were like and who was around still. Some of them were my teachers, which right. was incredible. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. D- direct lineage, right? To Direct lineage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Right, that that teacher who told me it was worse to be uninteresting than to be wrong. She worked directly with George Balanchine, so I knew I was I was based as close as I was ever going to get to that man through well, those. Suzanne teachers. Farrell too, right? She's Suzanne Farrell. My goodness, we, the, we have muse. The, that was a, his muse. Her muse, yes, exactly, yeah. And working with her was that was the closest. I remember having distinct, like clear moments of thought working with her in her classes and rehearsals, like. This is the closest a person can come to George Balanchine is being in the presence of this woman. Yeah, that's humbling. It was very humbling. Well, I know you you write about that particular experience working with her that 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 year. The physical toll of that experience. What 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 humbled me. What and I don't think you know unless you are a dancer. If you're in other art forms, you don't really understand how hard the physical toll is on your body. Yeah. 
Yeah. What, what, how, how do you describe the physical toll and, and, and enduring that for yeah. you know, 20 years? You know, the thing is that it's not always like that. Mm. There are periods of time when it's like that and worse. And then there are periods of time where it's a lot easier. So it's, you know, I don't want people to get the impression that every single day of your life, <laughs> you're crawling around on your knees at home because right. you, your feet are too tired to stand on. But there are, there are periods when it is that bad. And then there are periods of time where your work schedule is lighter. And there are times when you're on layoff from your company. And so you actually don't have any rehearsals to do at all. And so you're doing a very minimal amount of dancing. And so it's the balance between the, that ebb and flow of the workload that allow a person, a dancer to, to do it for many, many years. The real problems arise when you have a concentrated when you have a, a period of time where it's that physically demanding and there isn't enough rest time after that period. And, and that has happened to me too. Um, but those, those crunch times. And then there's also just like the whole media middle ground where it's not that brutal, but you're, you're bone tired. You are bone tired and your legs are like aching at the end of the day. Well, do you, do you carry the remnants of that now? You know, you've been retired for almost 11 years. I've had two hip surgeries since I retired from dancing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had two ankle surgeries while I was still dancing. Right. And then um, one hip surgery about four years later and another hip surgery about eight years later. Um, so yeah, I definitely carry the, the scars. And then I have, you know, arthritis and all sorts of different joints, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't have any resentment about that. It's still all worth it. Oh gosh. Yeah. No. And actually, I mean, I think I'm probably physically healthier than if I hadn't danced Mm -hmm. because I, I built um, a practice of keeping myself strong and flexible and, and active and moving. And I think that's a much healthier way to move through life. To go through life is to move through life Mm -hmm. versus being physically still. You said in the book that you, you were only a, you thought you were perfect once. And what I found so remarkable about that is that it was in a class. Yeah. That's amazing to me. And what I don't think maybe a lot of actors understand is, you know, you, you would be in class every day and then you're going and you're performing at night and then you're back right. in class and you're working right. on steps and fundamentals. And then it's like class performance, class performance, pretty much your entire career, right? Right. Like right. Never, it's so never a day you're not in class. That's exactly right. Class is a given. Class is the baseline. Like that is, that's every day. It's absolutely a given. Like if, if you have to miss class, your whole day is, is screwed up. Like if I couldn't, some dancers could do their own class. Like they could go into a studio by themselves and do go through it by them. I could not. I needed to be in a class with a teacher, giving me the steps, helping me get there, helping me get warmed up and ready for the day. And yeah, no, no matter what you have the rest of the day, rehearsals, performance, anything, you must have class first. What would happen to the quality of your work if you missed a rehearsal? It would be... You missed a class. Yeah, it would be... Um, there were a few occasions when I like, I couldn't, like I had, like I had to go, had a doctor's appointment or something that could, had to happen at that time. And so I like, I was like, oh shoot, what am I going to do? Like, how am I going to get ready for rehearsal that starts at 12 noon if I don't have my class at 1030? And so I'd like get in there and I try to do my own warm up, and I never felt totally balanced for one thing, mm-hmm. never felt totally centered, never had the same, like throughout the whole day, I wouldn't have the same precise control over my movement, over my footwork. I never felt fully, fully warmed up. So like jumping was like really, really effortful. Ugh, I, I guess I could like make a corollary to 
like a car that's really cold and never runs smoothly or something, a machinery that never runs smoothly if you don't have a full good class to get you warmed up. I would assume there's dancers that that don't go to class every day and still still perform and they just show up at their call time and... Yeah, there are. And, you know, the rest of us, us, we kind of fall into two camps, the class takers and the not class takers. And the class takers are very resentful of the not class takers because you should not be, no one should be able to do a performance if you haven't done class that day. It's just not fair. What what do you think, what's from from your point of view, what separates the class takers from those that don't, that just show up? Is there a difference? Well, it's a discipline. And let me tell you, it showed in the non-class takers performance. It showed because they didn't have the precision. They didn't have the control. They didn't have the finesse. They didn't have the fine tuning that us class takers did. And that's artistry, really. It's artistry. Attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. And most professionals will take class every day. The ones that don't are rare and Mm -hmm. maybe have like an extenuating circumstance, like maybe a really serious injury that you cannot take time off for, you must still perform for whatever reason with this injury. And yet, so the only way to prepare yourself to dance with this physical impediment would be to do your own very specific type of warm up. And I will say that later on in my career, when I started to accumulate physical injuries, I would amend, I would change a lot of things in class. I was always there doing every exercise, but I would sometimes have to change the exercise if I couldn't do a certain part of it because of my ankle or because of my back or because of my hip. Well, you, you had got pretty far in your career before you had a, your first real injury. Yeah, I, mean, I did. It seems very lucky. I think in that, in that, in that world to, to I, yeah. not injure yourself earlier. I was, I was, my early injuries were more minor and healed pretty quickly. I can't believe a guy, he cracked your rib, but just the bare hand of him holding you cracked yes. your rib. That was yeah. your first injury, right? That was my first big one. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing that that could happen. Yeah. I know, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, he was really strong and I'm petite, you know, I'm pretty small person. And this guy had just really big, strong hands. And yeah, there you go. Well, when you hurt your ankle, that, that first major ankle injury, Remember, you, I think it was that injury you, you said, I, I didn't think I was ever going to dance again. This was the last time I was ever going to dance. It wasn't that I didn't think I could. It was that I was afraid that it wouldn't let me to. I was afraid that I wouldn't even have the option to to try to come back. Um, yeah, the, little, the, the, the mental doubt about whether I could came later on in the rehab process after I had the surgery and I was in the cast for a long time. And then the day that I got the cast off, I suddenly was faced with, now you have to start rehab. And at that point, I, I remember thinking, wait a minute, I, I don't know if I can. I wonder. I, I was, it was more like, I wonder if I can. Especially to return back to that level. I mean, and then you got to get past the psychological fear of hurting it again or is right. I mean, did you have to deal with that? Like totally making you a little timid or a little cautious that you didn't have before. Yeah. And it's true. At that point I was a principal dancer. And so it wasn't just a matter of being able to dance again. It was being able to dance at that level that I had been at before, which was very high. And there were going to be all these eyes on me. If I had still been in the ensemble in the court of ballet at that point, the pressure would be much, much less. And so it was a fear of being able to resume that high level that I had been at. Um, that was so 
rattling yeah. and, and unsettling and, and scary. I was struck by another passage. Uh, this is where I felt for you too. I was, um, you were struggling before a performance, right? It's the, it's yeah. right before your breakdown, right? This, yeah. You're wailing and wailing because you, you, you're at what is 45 minutes an hour before yeah. performance. Yeah. You can't hit these. You're not doing, you're not yeah. hitting the movements. Yeah. Right. 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 And you go back to your dressing room and you just broke down I like this yeah. wailing. You said wailing and wailing. Yeah. Yeah, it was like the dam broke. It was this awful feeling of not being in control, of not being in control of my technique. You know, that was a moment where we're we we are talking about the, the clear definition between technical ability and artistic ability. I knew I could go out there and I could perform the Sugar Plum Fairy, but I couldn't do that one pirouette in my solo. What was going on? I couldn't figure out why. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't do it. I didn't know. Normally, we're like little scientists when something goes technically wrong. You go pull your right shoulder up and back a little bit and hold your left arm a little bit lower and pull your stomach in a little bit higher and then bend your knee a little bit deeper as you go into that step and that'll fix it. I tried everything and I couldn't figure out how to fix it. I kept going off at a 45 degree angle instead of being straight up and down. And I panicked because I thought, I don't know, the clock is ticking. I don't have time to stand here and workshop this technical problem and figure out what I'm doing wrong with my technique. And I've got to get off the stage and go and put on my costume and do it. And I just freaked out. And I, I yeah, I just totally freaked out. Well, what do you I think, didn't what know. What do you think upset you so much? What was so upsetting about it? It was because I was supposed to know. I was supposed to be this, this professional expert mm-hmm. at that technique, at that technical issue. And I suddenly wasn't. I felt like a fraud. I felt like a total fraud. Isn't that amazing to be at the at the level that you were at, operating and working, you know, at the top of the profession and to feel like a fraud? Yep. Yep. Total, total imposter syndrome. We all have it. All of us, all of us principal dancers had it. And we hit it in different ways. Some of us didn't hide it very well. I'm going to go out here and I'm, I'm a principal dancer and I'm doing the lead role in this ballet. And then I fall out of that pirouette. And like the whole audience is like, wait, what? We paid money to see a prima ballerina and this girl's falling. But then you went out there and you nailed it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because then something takes over and I don't know, because probably because I stopped thinking about what I was doing and just let my muscle memory do it for me instead of trying to be so analytical. Well, you all, yeah, but you said on stage, I'm not afraid of anything. Yeah. And so everything, all of that self doubt goes away once you step on the board. Yeah, it's true. And why, why is that? Do you think? Ah, gosh, I don't know. A sort of, uh, it's interesting. It's, in a way, it's like a naivete that everything's going to be okay. Just, I've, I've gone through life like that. You know, when I was switching jobs too, I never was really worried about it. I just had this weird blind trust that everything's going to be okay. And that's how it was when I got on stage too. I just had this deep connection and comfort with myself that allowed me to be, to throw caution to the wind and just get out there and go to town and do my thing. It's the payoff for all the hard work, right? I mean, that's the payoff oh, yeah, is, is when you, totally. when you get to dance, that's the payoff. And be completely because out of your head and in the moment. Completely. Yeah. Out of your head and out of anyone else's reach too. you know, as, as actors and as dancers, we're, we're nitpicked by the director or by the choreographer, by the person who's conducting your rehearsals and telling you you're doing this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, you need to do it this way and this way and this way. And then once the curtain goes up, they're gone. They can't talk to you anymore. It's all you. And that stage is yours. 
yes, you have your choreography and you have your script, but you do what you want with that. It's all yours. Suddenly you are the artist in control. You know, I'm not the paintbrush anymore. I'm, I'm conducting the paintbrush as well. And that is just such an exciting, freeing, emboldening, thrilling moment. And yeah, that's, that's, I think that's why my pirouette went straight because I stopped thinking about how I was doing the pirouette <laughs> and I just yeah. did it. Yeah. I also thought it was a rather courageous thing to leave the organ ballet theater at the top of, you know, you're at the top of the food chain there. You could stay, you could have stayed there and you said, no, there's something else out there for me. Yeah. That's, how, how scared were you? Well, not scared. Not scared, actually, because so having said what I just said about that freedom and stuff on stage, as the years went on and my physical capability started to feel less secure and I got, you know, a series of like little injuries that never fully healed and I was always dealing with them. I was always monitoring them and trying to maintain my body. I felt fragile physically and unable, unreliable as a, as a dancer unreliable. and unreliable. Like I, I didn't know if I went out there on stage and I threw myself with full abandon into this choreography, I felt like I, I can't really do that because I might hurt myself because my hip isn't fully healed and my ankle isn't fully healed and my knee feels funny today. And now my neck is out. And so if I do this step the way it needs to be done, I'm scared to do it because I'm going to hurt myself and I'm going to come down wrong. And that made me scared to perform. And so that, that started have thrown whole, you for a real, a real loop. It did. And it didn't stop. And it started this whole spiraling effect of self doubt and certainly took all of all any sort of enjoyment out of performing. And I got, I started to have real anxiety about stepping on stage. And so when I had that conversation with the artistic director that right before my last season, I, I was like kind of relieved, kind of relieved to the pressure was off, you know, and I could go out on a high note and just relish in everything I had done without the pressure to have to continue it yeah. when I knew that I wasn't going to be able to. Well, you did go out on a high note. That last, the, yeah. the way you write your, your last performance was um, oh. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah, it was memorable. It was really, really special. I'll tell you, you know, leading up to that, I had, like I just said, been plagued by performance anxiety that started to get worse and worse. But that day, it, there was none. There was none. The outpouring, the unexpected, I guess you thought. Yeah. The, the outpouring of love for you. Yeah. It was unexpected. And, and it was, I was just floored. I mean, I get chills still now thinking about it. I mean, everyone deserves to have... <sighs> a moment like that in their life. Yeah, for sure. I read Jeremy Dink's essay in the New Yorker. Did you? I did because I was like, well, you, you clearly have been carrying resentment and I, I gotta, I want to know why you've got to, uh, that I'm, I'm that's, it pissed me off reading it. Yeah. It right. Off re Who the fuck? <laughs> I know well, you, 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 you complaining, you're complaining about first class treatment. You're getting paid, and it was so offensive. It was absolutely offensive. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I was totally offended too, and that's why I wrote that essay in a fit of like 
exasperation and ugh. well, you know, especially because you had a, a freelance career, you were doing, you know, were you in a Nutcracker in a Houston high school yes. auditorium, a, a, totally. a gym, yeah. a high school gym? Yeah, yeah. I was like, Jeremy Dix, like, what are you talking about? You think you have it hard? Boo hoo. Yeah. Well, what was that freelance? period of your career like of, of carving out your own performance schedule of working and you know having a dressing room in the handicap bathroom of a right. high school yeah well it was colorful i'll tell you that it was colorful you learn from it? i learned that it's like you got to be really scrappy and take care of yourself and i had been pretty um coddled because up to then i'd been in two ballet companies where everything was taken care of for me i was given given the clothes to wear. I was given the point shoes. I was given a daily class every day. I, my rehearsal schedule was set and it was all in one place in a very nice, well-equipped studio. And then when it was time to perform, I had a very nice, well-equipped theater and a dressing room and my costume was brought to my dressing room and I was given a warm-up class and there was a stage manager there and everything was great. And there were union rules protecting me if anything was wrong. But then when you're a freelancer, you got to take care of yourself and make sure you... It, when your circumstances and your surroundings are not supportive, you have to figure out how to how to perform at whatever level is possible given the circumstances. So I didn't make myself be the same prima ballerina that I had been on, you know, the Opera House stage when I was in the Houston High School gym. Because if I did, first of all, I would probably hurt myself, and. I mean, you, you also, you could be a businessman. And I thought, you know what? People, it took me a lot of, it took a lot of people telling me this before I accepted it, but they said, you have to give what you're paid in a circumstance like this. You know, not always, not always, but in certain sittings, it's okay to calculate what value you want to give to a certain type of performance. And I, you know, I never downgraded myself but there were times when I thought, you know what, I don't need to force myself to do the triple pirouette here. A single or a double pirouette is going to be just fine. And I don't need to do, you know, sometimes in a variation, there's an extra bit at the end called the coda. And I, you know, in this stage, which is uh, the shape of a rectangle and as slippery as an ice skating rink, I can take that coda off of my variation and I'm going to stop halfway through and just have the cut music cut right there so that I don't like, kill myself. It's, it's not worth it. So that's, it taught me how to um, negotiate and balance the risk and the reward of certain circumstances. And it, it also, yeah, it, it just it taught me a lot about how to be an effective performer in subpar circumstances and how you can still communicate well and how you can still be warm and vibrant without necessarily having to bring the same level of technique. What have you learned about being an artist teaching? Mm. And what's that experience been like for you now? Yeah. Well, I've learned, let's see, now that I'm a teacher, well, I've learned a lot more about just technical aspects, but you know, you just learn that because you, you have to talk about and analyze it a lot more than when you're just doing kind of by intuition um, in terms of artistry, though, I've, I've learned about how important it is to be unafraid and that fear is usually what creates a boundary between an artist and the audience. And uh, most of the dancers I work with are, uh, are adolescents, teenagers, and young adults. 
And they're at that stage where some of them have already had that, um, that awakening and they're un- they're sort of naturally unafraid. And the other ones I can see that they have a wall up and I, I try to help them feel comfortable enough to break it down and to know that they're not, um, that it's, that it's all right to ask questions, that they're not showing weakness by asking questions. It's not vulnerable. It's actually strong. Well, what's the, what do you mean that they have a wall up? What's the wall? I, I, it's a fear of being wrong, you know, it goes back to sort of it's, what I it's had. So crippling. It's so crippling. And it's a fear yeah. of making choices or a fear. It's a fear of failure. Yeah, it really is. It's a fear of failure. And so they don't actually invest very much of themselves in it because they don't risk they do anything. They don't risk. Yeah. I'm thinking actually one young woman that I have as a student this past year, that's been a source of frustration actually for me as a teacher, because she has a nice bit of potential as, as a, as a dancer. And I've been trying so hard to help her maximize that and help to take it, help her take it further. And she's been very resistant and, you know, accepts things at the moment, but then not the next day. And I see a fear in her and it's a real reluctance to, um, to invest very much. And I, I don't, I'm not sure quite what all is behind it, but it could also be an ambivalence about dance itself mm-hmm. and about, about her connection to it and about her love of it and her passion for it. Yeah. I think that happens too with artists. Um, sometimes when that wall is up, it's, it's actually an ambivalence within themselves about how much they are willing to give, how much they want to give. Well, I think I, it's, my, it's probably true with dancers. I don't know, but I know for actors, they, when I get a group of students that start, they have no idea how hard it is. They just mm-hmm. have this dream and this idea of like, oh yeah, I'd love to be an actor. It's, you know, and they don't really understand. Right. And when they're faced with like what it really means. Right. Right. They're over, yep. they're overwhelmed by it. Right. Right. It's so true. It's so true. What's interesting is that in some of the younger children that I teach, they come in with that same kind of like glossy fantasy about, Oh, I want to take my ballet classes now. And, and then I tell them, show them what it's all about and that it's, you know, before you get to put your tutu on, we have to work on our technique and we have to learn how to stand up and we have to learn how to straighten our legs and how to get very strong in our legs and our feet. And this is the way you do that. And they thrive on the challenge. A couple of them, sure, maybe don't, but most of them do. Most of them do. They thrive on being pushed. And I see it. I see the transformation in their eyes and in their faces and in their bodies. Isn't that exciting as a teacher? That's when you're like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. It's so great. I love it. That's what keeps me going as a teacher is when you see, you show them what's possible and what's needed to get to the next level. And you, you kind of give them a little shove to get there and you see them thrive on that, thrive on that structure and then start to push themselves and get excited about doing more and more. When you retired, were you, did you have to go through a grieving process? Uh, like what was the, that transition to giving up your life's work like that? Yeah, I'm still grieving. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'm going to grieve for the rest of my life life. Mm-hmm. I really will. I really you will. You miss it so much? It's, it's not actually interesting. It's not so much that I miss it because it's still here with me. It's like, like I sort of write about it in the book. Like I feel like my performance entity, my performance person, the performance Gavin, the dancer Gavin is still inside my body. It's just that I don't actively engage it. I mean, I do sort of kind of, but not nearly as fully as I did. So it's still right here with me. It's just dormant. What, I'm grieving about, honestly, is like all of the things left undone 
as an artist. Like what? Because what when you, out? what's so cruel about dance, professional dance, particularly ballet, is that you have to stop doing it physically. You, you come to the place where you can't do it physically anymore, just when your artistry is starting to ripen. And that's, that's kind of what happened to me. I was just like, I was really, really into discovering myself as an artist. I really didn't have the energy anymore to do the technique. So, you know, I could have segued off into more contemporary forms of dance or other forms of dance altogether or different art forms altogether, different performing arts. I mean, honestly, like I thought about getting into dance theater and trying to, you know, do some of that. And I just, I couldn't figure out how um, I was kind of, I don't know. I just, I, I couldn't figure out quite how to do it and I haven't done it, but I do hold out a little bit of hope that at some point along my journey here, I, I mean, I, I'm a natural performer. I want to get back on stage. Have you, have you choreographed anything? Are you, is that something that interests you or? It doesn't really interest me. I have done a little bit of choreography. Um, I don't think it's very good. <laughs> it's, it's not. I'm not very good at it. So, you know, that's not something I really want to pursue, but I did do um, within a couple of years of performing from, I mean, of retiring from OBT, I did do this really interesting little project with a poet and musician. Uh, we made a trio and um, I choreographed some dance to the poetry and then we laid music on with it and we put on a couple of shows and it was really, it was neat. Well, how do you feel about your book? How do you feel about having put this into the world? Oh my God. Oh my God I wrote this. I, I, made, I, I made this. It's amazing. It's totally amazing. I'm still kind of, I can't believe it. Um, but it feels really, really good. It was really help. It was a really way of processing coming off of being on stage. I mean, this was a way of being on stage forever because, you know, my performances are over, but this book is going to be around on bookshelves forever, hopefully. And, and so this is my way of staying on stage. I think so. It, it's really, really gratifying. What would you like to to say or some advice to give to somebody who's looking to live a creative life that wants to be an artist? May not necessarily know what that word means yet, mm-hmm. but is yeah. is intrigued by that kind of life. What 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 do you want to say to that person? Yeah. Well, I would say it's. I think it's the most human way to live is to live an artistic life. It's the most human way to live. That's, it's the way you tap into your humanity is by finding your mode of expression and, and expressing it and fulfilling it, whatever it happens to be, whether it's movement or theater or visual art, creating or crafting, whatever it is, Find the mode of expression that is the most natural for you and allow it to flourish. Find it and then develop it. That may mean developing its technique and in order to be as expressive as you can with it. And then, but don't run away from it if that's the case, because developing a technique for your voice only makes your voice stronger. So I would say find your mode of expression. Find out how you can maximize it and then write it out. Well, my fellow daydreamers, thank you for sticking around and keeping that phone in your pocket. Please do yourself a favor and get Being a Ballerina by Gavin Larson. You won't regret it. 
You can subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcast. If you have a few seconds and you can review it on iTunes, that would be fantastic. You can go to the website creatingbehaviorpodcast.com for the links and content to every episode. You can book me for private coaching, read my blogs. If you're interested in starting to really train yourself seriously as a professional actor, go to maggieflanaganstudio.com and train with me. You can follow me on Instagram at creatingbehavior at maggieflanaganstudio. Lawrence Trailer, thank you for the song, my man. I love it. My friends, get real with yourself. Check in and just see what you're up for. And if you want to be really, really, really good, play full out with yourself and don't ever settle for your second best. My name is Charlie Sandlin. Peace.